Today, we start a three-week series called So Will I. It's actually from the song we just sang because it's been such a powerful word for many of us uh, who are singing it, uh, who sing along in our cars, uh, but also for the missions committee that saw some things in that that really were, was the center of what we wanted to say over the next three weeks. Uh, on November 11th is when we'll have our our missions offering. And we do this every year as a way to fund the mission of this church uh, overseas in support of our missionaries uh, locally as we engage Collin County on our short-term missions as well that you'll hear more about uh, if you're in our classes on Sunday morning and services as well. And I really do trust that if this Sunday I were right now to say, all right, we're doing another offering. This is the Sunday for missions offering. We would get it uh, taken care of, that you all are such a generous people in the way that you see the mission that God's called you to. And I'm grateful to be a part of a church where that's the, the case. But we preach on this for three weeks, not just so that we can, you know, hopefully get you uh, to anticipate an offering. We also preach and focus on this conversation for three weeks because it's the center of what our church is about. It's that important that every year we come back to mission one, that God has called us to make disciples of all nations. And that mission never changes. Uh, but it takes on new forms as we become the people of God called into new eras with this mission that God's given to us. But we believe this, that mission is central to the church. It's the lifeblood of why we come together. And if it were not for the mission of God, uh, and, and then we would all just kind of be waiting around for Jesus to return. But we've got a mission, don't we? We've got a calling on our lives and gifts that God has given to us for that purpose. Uh, and so I want to uh, share today more about the so will I theme. Uh, you, we just sang in the song a little bit ago that when Jesus left the grave behind, that we also proclaim after that, that so will I, right? Anything that Jesus does, we're people who want to follow and do the same in our lives. And we have the power through the resurrection, through the spirit of God to do that. The same is true though about surrender. If Jesus gladly chose surrender. That's what we're saying is we want to be the people who are willing to do the same in our own lives. And if Jesus gave his life to love the world, so will I. And that's why we exist, is to do what Jesus has done. And that's what God's mission is all about as we seek to engage that over the next three weeks and into this next year in the specific ways we'll share with you. Let's pray as we open God's word this morning. Father, you, uh, you spoke all of this into existence. And uh, you sent your son Jesus into the world for the sake of surrender and for the sake of love and for the sake of your mission and your calling. And you have given us the same commission to enter into the world in all the ways and all the places that you have called us, God, with your good news that is enfleshed in our lives and it's spoken in our words. God, I pray that would be true of our church more and more in the days ahead as we would know our why, we would know our purpose, so that we might live that as uh, an aroma to you in the world, God. I pray this morning you'd pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts and so we might say the same phrase we just sung again as we leave today, whatever Jesus has done. That's what we want to be true in our lives. So will we. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the world has changed. Perhaps you've noticed. There's lots of ways we could talk about that change in our world. But one of the main ways I've seen this uh, occur is in, when it comes to uh, belief in our world. In the year 1500, over 500 years ago, belief was just the default mode of people in the world. The scientific revolution hadn't come along, the Enlightenment has it. Everyone believed that there was a, a, a God or a series of gods. There was a belief in the supernatural. You didn't have to convince people of that. But today, the default mode in our world is unbelief. And it's because of a lot of advancement that that has changed. There are good things that have happened that we now can see through science processes we couldn't see before. We can explain where rain comes from and how that cycle 
is developed. The question is, do we believe that God's behind that or that's just a natural rhythm? We uh, have seen through the rise of, of secularism a new worldview that changes the way we go about our mission. The mission hasn't changed. It's still to make disciples of all nations. Uh, the story that we tell hasn't changed. It's the process we go by which to tell that story. It's the, where we find people who, are, people who are starting from a place, many from unbelief, trying to help them see that there's a God who's behind all of this. There's another change, though, that's happened in our culture that changes the way we do mission. See, at one point, for about a millennia, the church was the center of culture. It wasn't true when Jesus died and was resurrected. For a good period of time, the church was a minority group. It was a persecuted group that lived in the midst of a larger empire that didn't like the message that Jesus came to bring. But the arrangement changed in the 4th century with Emperor Constantine. That Christianity was now legal. It was even became kind of the prominent religion by the end of the 4th century. And that changed Christianity in a major way, and it changed the world in quite a few ways. And for about a millennium, uh, we saw the church as the center of power, the center of culture. In some ways, you couldn't distinguish the state and the church in many places because it was the pope or it was the emperor at the time or the king who was Christian and part of that state religion. But today, uh, things have changed. Things are in a different place. And I want to think about that a little bit today as we talk about the church. So you might think about the church as the center of culture, just as this picture shows as uh, kind of the steeple in, in, in the town square. And it was the center of everything architecturally. In many cities throughout the world, you can still go to the town square and the, the church is going to be found there. But today, what we see is the church dwarfed by a different architecture, dwarfed by skyscrapers all around it that uh, have really, uh, the architecture shows marginalized the church from the center of power, from the center of architecture and geography and cities, really marginalized to a place where it is not in power like it once was. And this architecture isn't an accident. I think it's a parable of sorts. The church finds itself in a new location. And we find ourselves wondering, what does it look like to be Christian in the midst of a world that no longer sees the church as the center of power and influence. Some people are calling this era a post-Christian era. And that doesn't mean that Christianity is done away with or that there's not a role for it, but it does seem to describe that the church is no longer the center of influence and power like we once were. So what is the church's response in a world where we're no longer at the center of things like we once were? How does that shape our mission? I want to speak to that today with you. In order to look properly forward to the mission that the church ought to hold in that new place, I want to look backward to the story of Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, open with me to the book of Hebrews. I'll read it from this book instead of the library like we had last week. Hebrews chapter 13 is where I want to read this morning to you. And I think the writer of Hebrews understands this location. They're coming from a place on the margins of culture. And in chapter 13, the writer of Hebrews goes back to an old practice in Judaism, the Day of Atonement. And then they talk about how the Day of Atonement was a precursor to where Jesus died geographically and how that calls us as the church into mission in a certain way. And I think these words are as relevant as ever today for us. I want to read, uh, before I read, I want to remind you about the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a day in Israel's uh, yearly calendar where they would have this festival, where they would have this day where their sins were removed from them. So all the sins they'd accumulated over the last year, they didn't have Jesus as a sacrifice where all their sins are washed away through 
uh, baptism and through repentance on a regular basis, right? What they had was this day of atonement. And on that day, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. And before he would uh, create a sac- have a sacrifice for the sins of all the people, he would first sacrifice to cleanse he and his family of the sins that they had committed in that year. And so he would sacrifice a bull for his sins, for his family's sins. And, and then on each day of that year, there w- he would then go and sacrifice for the rest of the sins of the people of Israel. And then after making these sacrifices, he would take a live goat and on that goat, he would lay his hands and he would confess the sins of all of Israel over the last year. I want you to imagine what this scene would have sounded like, right? This would be really bizarre to our ears. Like they're like, Hey, we know little Jeffrey had some sins this year. We're going to call those out, you know, sins of uh, disobeying his parents and, and so forth. And they would cast on the goat. And then there, they would talk about the, the couple that had had marriage problems. They'd cast those sins on the goat. And then they talk about the financial impropriety. I mean, imagine what that would be like, right? All the sins that are placed on the head of this goat. It was a symbol. It was, as they sent this goat out, it was a symbol of the, the forgiveness that God was offering. And these sins were removed from them. And they would send that goat into the desert, into the wilderness, as if to say, those sins are no longer present with us. They're gone. Now imagine the freedom that would have made you feel in that day, right? I mean, there's no other way to be forgiven of sins. This is the measure, the way that God had chosen to do that. In light of that background, the writer of Hebrews goes back to that day, that experience, that sacrifice. It was a yearly thing in Israel's past and in their present. And he calls out what that might mean in light of the future and their mission. So let's read from Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11 and 12. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Now, architecture and and geography matter. They matter in our mission and they matter when it comes to where Jesus is sacrificed because he's stepping into a role. He's stepping into a role of this day of atonement. And so when he was crucified, when Romans crucified criminals, they would do that outside the city. I've been to Jerusalem. I got this opportunity a couple decades ago, and I, I remember going there, and I remember walking that road that Jesus walked from inside the city to Golgotha. And you would walk outside of the city gates when you went to do this, right? And so he carried his cross, and then Simon carries his cross for part of the time, and they carry it to Golgotha, and he's crucified outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. And why is that significant for the church's mission? Well, the writer of Hebrew tells us in verses 13 and 14, let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. The writer of Hebrews is trying to remind the people in the first century, look, your mission, your calling is to follow Jesus outside of the camp as well. The church of, of Jesus Christ does what Jesus does. And if Jesus was willing to leave the safety of the city, we as his followers should be called to do the very same thing. If we're marginalized in our culture, it's not the first time. We have a pattern and we have an example from Jesus. And that's why the words uh, of this Uh, I I think these words are prophetic for life in America in 2018 because we are no longer the church at the center of the city. We no longer hold the power we once did. Our steeples are no longer uh, raising through all the other buildings in the city. No, they're diminished. They're shrunk by other skyscrapers that tell a story about what's truly in power. And some lament that change in our culture, and they, and they plot on how they can return to that sense of power. How can we get back control like we once had? But Hebrews 13 encourages us to another route. 
Hebrews 13 encourages us to leave the safety of the city, to leave the walls of our churches, and to find ourselves disgraced with Jesus at the margins. So I see our church's situation in America in 2018 as an opportunity at the same time as it's a challenge. May we embrace our new location, and may we find in it an opportunity to engage God's mission along with Jesus outside the camp. But that begs another question altogether. What does that mean for us? What does mission look like on the margins? This has been about a thousand years since we've been in this place. But one couple who can help us imagine that, I think, is our missionaries in Rwanda, Kigali, Rwanda. Their names are Caleb and Jenny Beck. The church in Rwanda has experienced a similar marginalization for a different set of reasons. You see, in 1994, uh, Rwanda was the crown jewel of African missions. It was an example of how actually the faith could get passed off to people who didn't necessarily have faith. In fact, at that time, uh, Rwanda was the most Christian country in all of Africa. Maybe you've heard this story before. About 80 to 95% of Rwandans would have self-reported themselves as Christians. But if you know any more of the story of 1994, you know things changed. Because there was a genocide that happened between the Hutus and the Tutsis. There was this tribal warfare. And what they discovered was, even though people claimed the name of Jesus, their tribal identities, in the end, were more significant than their new commitment to Jesus Christ that held them together. And in the midst of that, that marginalized the church. Because this church that had told a story, this church that had committed people to a new way of life, it hadn't followed through on its promises. And all this pain and this discord and this was about Christians who were killing Christians, many of them. Because of this, many Rwandans became disenfranchised with the church. You can no longer just put up a steeple and hope for people to enter into it. You're going to have to think about missions in a new way. And Caleb and Jenny Beck in 2007 moved there to try to reimagine what that would look like. Not to put up a, a steeple and expect people would flood in, but to walk with these people who'd experienced great pain and hardship and bring reconciliation. In fact, watch this video as you tell, uh, see a little bit of an update of what's happening in Rwanda with the bags. Hello, GBO. Uh, we just wanted to say hi. We wanted to say thanks for everything that you guys have done for us. We appreciate your support, not only because it enables our family to be here on the field, but it helps with all the ministries that we're a part of, especially ATN. And so thank you again for everything that you do that enables that work to happen. Um, just as a quick family update, we're doing great. This is our third year of homeschooling. Aiden here is in the fifth grade. Karis is in the third. Uh, we're enjoying that. We wanted to say thank you again and blessings from our family. We wanted to share some of the exciting things that are happening in our world. We will start in Bugacera. Things have been really busy at the trade school. A few years back, we started a welding company alongside the school in order to help the school become more sustainable, as well as to give the students the opportunity to have hands-on experience. Recently, we have received lots of work. This is good for both the school, the students, and our community. This truly is business's mission. At the request of the community, we are planning to open a preschool on the campus in January. Our workshop and trade school will be relocated a bit further down the property, and the school will have the top half. Our vision is that our facilities in Bugacera will continue to become a connecting point, a place where every segment of society, from farmer to trade student to children and their families, would find a community of people being transformed in Christ and that they then would go and participate in the work of transforming others. The Peace House Ministry is finishing its eighth year of work among some of the most vulnerable families in Kigali. In previous years, Peace House operated a residential house for kids who found themselves on the streets. But this upcoming year, Peace House has decided to move away from working with street kids in a transition home to working with them in the context of their families or caretakers. 
This is a big decision that we think will be more effective. This transition coincides with our larger dream of seeing our network among the vulnerable continue to become a community or family which gathers in small groups and larger weekly gatherings. This network is growing significantly and just last week we celebrated a number of baptisms. The testimonies and stories coming from this group are powerful to say the least. You see their partnership. They're walking beside people and the questions they're asking with the needs that they have. They're trying to gain credibility again in the nation that's lost hope that the church has answers for their questions, which may sound familiar to us. And I love what they're doing. They're passing off leadership to these Rwandans because it's them in the end that will have to take this message forward. It's a beautiful picture of what a church on the margins can do to bring healing and help and hope to a world that needs it. We have similar stories in our own country. You saw pictures earlier of churches. Uh, The first of those was a steeple that was surrounded by a city that was far smaller than that steeple went up in elevation. Uh, This is actually an artist's rendering of a church called Trinity Church in New York City. Uh, This is the third building you see of Trinity Church's uh, three buildings. Uh, The first was destroyed in a fire in 1776, the great uh, New York City fire. It's the second building was lasted for about 48 years before snow caused problems to that church. They had to tear it down and build this third structure. And uh, for 23 years, Trinity Church was the tallest building in the United States. Pretty remarkable if you think about it, right? Downtown Manhattan, you can imagine now what the difference would look like between what it looks like now. People sailed into New York Harbor and they would see this as the prime uh, structure, the tallest in the entire nation, until a few years later, a church in Chicago overtook it with a taller steeple. 281 feet tall. It was the tallest building in New York until 1890. Many members of government uh, were attenders of this church on a regular basis. Now, the second picture I showed you was from a recent trip that I took to New York City. Uh, That's the same church, funny enough, Trinity Church. It's right around the corner from Wall Street. It's hidden away where if you're not looking for it, you might miss it. In fact, the only reason I ran into it on this last trip, on my fourth trip, the first time I found it, was because we were on a historical walking tour of Alexander Hamilton. Now, this was my idea of a good vacation, but the others who were with me didn't like the trip. They just kind of made it, you know, went with me. But I loved this opportunity. So we show up at Trinity Church, which is where the tour started, and uh, walked around the, the, the grounds there. And the reason we started at Trinity Church is because that's the, uh, the burial site for Alexander Hamilton and his family. You can see uh, that altar right there, that uh, gravestone. Uh, if you're a fan of the musical or his story on the other side of the church hard in the, on, on the other side of the church in the courtyard is the burial site of Angelica Schuyler, the sister-in-law and close friend, depending how you read the story of Hamilton. Now seeing these uh, artifacts, these grave sites right beside this walking tour that we begin, you can begin to think that maybe this church is a museum, right? It's just this historical marker that this church must not be in service anymore, just like many cathedrals that you might see in Europe that still are towering uh, structures in the midst of cities. And if you've been to those cathedrals, you know that often the sounds of worship are not found in, in their halls near as often as the churches that we know. And though this church that I showed is, is dwarfed by the buildings around it, uh, it's not a dead church, let me assure you of that. It may find itself less prominent than when it was that uh, tallest building in all of America, but it continues to live out its substantial mission in the 21st century in remarkable ways. From uh, its early days, Trinity Church had an innovative plan about how they would go about mission. Its history begins in 1697. 
And by 1750, just 50 years after its beginning, the, the population of New York City had already doubled in size. So this church had the foresight to become one of the early multi-site churches. They planted two other churches on, on the island, seeing where the growth would occur. And one of those churches that they planted, the second of them, was called St. Paul's Chapel. St. Paul's Chapel, which shares its own remarkable history. Now, it's great uh, that they decided to plant this St. Paul's Chapel because it became the worship place and house for that church when it had that fire in 1776. It's the place they worshiped in the midst of what they thought was going to be a growth opportunity. It became their house for a while. During that time, significant leaders in our country's past worshiped on those pews. George Washington worshiped there for about two years while the uh, capital was waiting to be moved to Washington, uh, D.C. His presidential pew remained in St. Paul's until just a few years ago. And I'll tell you more about that pew in a moment. But in 1904, St. Paul's continued the ongoing innovative mission work that uh, Trinity Church had done for years. They were in partnership, and this new chapel in 1904 started uh, a new service, a a worship service at 2.30 a.m. Why, you ask? There were print workers who would get off work at that time, and they would go to bed, and many of them wouldn't make it back for regular morning worship. And so they decided, no, let's start a worship service to engage these workers as they come off work. In the 80s, in 1983, St. Paul's opened a homeless shelter, but not in another part of the city. They opened that homeless shelter on the second floor of their worship center, and that remained in existence for uh, more than 20 years. And while those are innovative approaches... And while this church ought to be known for the great work it's done for over 200 years, its most important moment came in an unexpected way over 200 years after its start on the date September 11, 2001. You see, St. Paul's Chapel is located right across the street from Ground Zero. If you've been there, you might have seen a a chapel, a a church of sorts with a uh, graveyard around it in its courtyard. St. Paul's is uh, Manhattan's oldest public building in continuous use. When the World Trade Centers came down, crashing down on that day uh, more than 17 years ago now, St. Paul's was the only building in the immediate area that was still functional and functioning in the days that followed. And it played a crucial role in the aftermath of 9-11. On September 12, the day after, Lyndon uh, Harris, then a priest on the clergy staff at Trinity and St. Paul's, arrived at St. Paul's Chapel to find something quite remarkable, not a window On this chapel, this church had been destroyed in the midst of all the debris that had fallen down. It was like a miracle of sorts in the midst of this uh, destruction zone that was going to need to be cleaned up over the days ahead. And as the recovery started at the World Trade Center site, hundreds of rescue workers came to Lower Manhattan to search for survivors and begin to sort through the debris and the ruins. Slowly at first, rescue workers, police, and firefighters Stop by the chapel to rest and to wash up because long, exhausting shifts prevented many of these workers from returning home. Many of them even slept on the pews of this church. And during all hours of the day and night, rescue and recovery workers staggered through the gates of this chapel, hungry and weary, weighted down by gear, wearing boots half melted from the fiery ash. They fell into St. Paul's open embrace. And after working 12 to 18 hour shifts at ground zero, rescue and recovery workers knew that St. Paul's was a place they could find respite in the midst of their mission. In the first three months following 9-11, more than 3,000 workers entered into the doors of St. Paul's Chapel and entered 
and exited out to continue their mission. Police officers, port authority workers, firefighters, national guardsmen, construction and sanitation crews, engineers and technicians found their way to this ancient 200-year-old church for eight months. Hundreds of volunteers worked 12-hour shifts around the clock at St. Paul's Chapel, serving meals, making beds, playing music, stitching feet that needed stitching. In fact, podiatrists used the very pew that was George Washington's pew to mend these broken and tired workers so that they could continue their work in the world. All of it was done so that these people who were weary, who knew exactly what their mission is, who needed a rest before they went back out, could enter in and receive what they needed and then exit out to continue the mission they'd been called to. Is there a better example of the church's role in the world than this? Trinity Church and St. Paul's Chapel were at the center, once the center of life in Manhattan. They were that, that steeple that you would have seen when you came into New York Harbor. But years had passed since them, and then they were dwarfed by other buildings. You have to almost find your way to them and know where they are to find them today. But in the midst of those towers coming down around them, the church stood up because it knew its story and it knew its mission and it knew it was called in that moment to bring these workers in from their tired work and to send them out to continue their mission in the world. The church was still the church because they knew their story. They knew that just because they weren't the center of prominence and power like they once had been in the middle of New York City, they knew that when the moment came they were needed, they would be ready to step up and do what the church is called to do. And in Rwanda... When the genocide happened and, and the church lost its influence and it was no longer the center of power like it once had been, it had to figure out, it had to renew its call. It had to be a part of the mission of God without expecting the influence and power that had come before. And so Caleb and Jenny Beck in the midst in 94 were also having a dream in their hearts as God was growing them up to be missionaries, knowing God, would, knowing one day that he would send them back to that same place to be the church, not at the center of power and influence, but on the margins Bearing the disgrace that Jesus bore, knowing that we don't have an enduring city that's here. We're searching for the city that's to come. That's what Hebrews 13 lies out as the church's mission, is what we're called to be. And in the midst of power, it's sometimes easy to lose our story, to sometimes lose sense of what we're supposed to do and what our mission is. But we have an opportunity in this day and this age, just like the first century, to take that position that goes with Jesus to the margins of our culture, that waits on those moments in our culture where the culture is in chaos and in madness and doesn't know how to find its mission and its story again. And in those moments, it's important that we as the church are ready to be deployed, are ready as massage therapists and podiatrists, ready as people who are ready to receive those who are wounded and send them back out once again. You see, the church finds itself in a new era. The world has changed, perhaps you've noticed. Even just this week, we see the chaos of the world around us, don't we? Many of us were watching the news, I know, yesterday and seeing that even places of worship are no longer safe places. And we're concerned even as we walk in, looking around a little bit more on days like this. There's chaos in the world around us. There's division that's leading us to all kinds of hateful places. And in moments like these where we've lost our influence, it can be easy to rail at the world and say, see, you should have listened to the message. See, you shouldn't have taken prayer out of our schools. But in these moments, in those moments that sometimes we want that power back, let us not forget that we still have a story and we still have a calling beside Jesus on the margins of our culture, being the church as God calls us to be in his mission.
That doesn't change because things are in chaos. In fact, it's in those moments of chaos that everyone looks back to us and, and wonders, do we have a story to tell? Do we have a mission that we're called on? In the midst of the genocide in Rwanda, what we found was that there were Christians in the midst of that. There were people that had a vision that maybe in the midst of the rubble of that church, maybe in the midst of that, there would still be a future for God's mission in the world. And even today, maybe especially today, as we find ourselves in a new position in our culture, it's okay to lament that things have changed. It's okay to be a little bit fearful about what the world will look like for our kids and our grandkids. But let's not stay there for long because there's going to be a day when the church needs to step up. And that day is this day. It's this hour. It's this time. And that's what our calling is over the next three weeks is a reminder that just as Jesus enters into the world in suffering, so will I. That's what we signed up for in our baptism. And just as people find themselves the margins and we increasingly find ourselves so, that's not a threat. That's an opportunity to find ourselves the place of hurting and to provide comfort and healing. And in the moments where it seems like our church has been dwarfed by other interests that are more important, there will be days where fire and chaos come. And the church gets to be the church all over again, just like it was in the first century. I believe we're in one of those times. I believe we're in one of those moments where we get to stand up, where we get to be reminded of our story and to join Jesus outside the camp. And that can look like a challenge. It can look like things are over, but it's in the midst of that that sometimes that's how a resurrection happens, right? Death can only, uh, resurrection can only happen when there's been a death, right? And maybe this is one of those seasons where God is calling things to die, but also going to bring forth new life. That's my trust as a church, is that we get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of that in Rwanda. We get to be a part of that in Canada, on the margins with First Nations people. I'll tell you more about next week. But it's true also here in the United States. As we find ourselves in a new location, the gospel hasn't changed. The message hasn't changed, and our calling and mission haven't either. So I want to remind us of that, and I want to call us back into the world with that. Be generous in two Sundays when we get to give to this and consider the ways that you as an individual will take on that missionary task in your everyday life, Monday through Friday, but also in mission trips that we'll take this next year as well, our short-term missions. Let's pray as we close our time this morning. God, I thank you for the ways that you call your church to be the church. I thank you for the ways that you have commissioned and called us, that we are not left waiting on Jesus to return, but we're left with the Spirit, a deposit of the future that you're wanting us to use and that wants to use us in order to become your people in the world and to stand up at the margins beside those who find us in a new location. God, I pray that like St. Paul's Chapel, we would be ready and we would stand up at just the right moment. And I pray just as you would bless the, the Becks, that you would bless us to find ourselves in a new location where being Christian isn't necessarily a, a blessing to everyone we come across. It isn't seen and, and met with the greatest uh, of joys. But God, we want to change that through our love for the people around us. Our, my prayer is that we can be that more and more, God, as we are generous in a couple of weeks for missions and as we go ourselves back into the world. God, uh, I thank you for all those who've come in weary this morning. And I pray that you would send each one of us out in your spirit and in your calling today. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.